Okay, I want to say Shalom Aleichem to everybody and to wish everybody um, a good Zoomer. We're now in the, in the summer, in the month of Iyar. We're holding Erev, Erev, Lag Ba'imer. And um, as I mentioned in the uh, Erev Shabbos uh, podcast of our Torah, that it's uh, no question that it's very hard to go into this Lag Ba'imer this year. We all remember uh, it's the yard site. It's going to be the upcoming yard site of the 45 holy people, holy Kedoshim that were taken away from us last year on the Lag Baimer. And, uh, you know, it, it just brought, brings home very, very much uh, the fact that the Avelis, which we know we, 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 we keep in these days because of the Talmud Rebbe Kiva, but we see that, unfortunately, it wasn't only Talmud Rebbe Kiva, but... Unfortunately, we have our own Talmud and Rebbe Kiva of our generation. Um, it happens to be that uh, on Lag Ba'amir night, I have, I have a few simchas, and besides a few simchas, I have the yard site of, of Azi Koltai, Allah Vashalem, from Herhan Arnov, who was a young boy, young bar mitzvah boy, he passed away at that tragic event. And um, the parents are making a siyum, and I think they're making a some other things that they're doing. So, and this is, but this is this is the time period that we're in. And on one hand, we um, we also have to tie it in with the theme of tonight, which I want to speak about. Is that happens to be that my father, Oliver Shalom, who we're going to speak about tonight, Rabbi Yaakov, Ben Rabbi Eliezer, uh, Irene Kaparis Mishkova. <coughs> it's his thirty-fourth yard site. So I felt very, very apropos that the 34th yard site, what's so special about the 34th yard site? He's a lifter. You know, for many people here, 34 years, it sounds like a long time ago. But for myself, it's really like yesterday because I um, remember him so vividly. And I felt it would be very apropos that maybe I should speak a little bit about him. And especially in the lieu of the Gedolim series. So in my book, you know, I speak a lot about Gadol. One of those, the first, really, like the first Gadol who I got a chance to meet was my father, Olav Hashem. And when I say those words, the first Gadol that I got to meet, <coughs> you know, it sounds a little bit of like, you know, like, uh, you know, a little pat on the back. You know, I'm the son of a Gadol. It's not what I meant to say. What I meant to say is that certain aspects of my father's life, he was a great, great Talmud Chacham and a great Marbitz Torah. And he's really the, I think, the, the linchpin for myself that if I have at all uh, had a connection to Gedolim, it's only because my father's, uh, my father's tutelage, my father teaching me the importance of Gedolim and his connection to Gedolim. So in that respect, he was a Gadol. He was a Gadol. And the 34th yard site happens to be that my father lived, he was, he was Nifter on Lamed Beis Baimer, uh, the Hebrew date is Yud Zion, um, Yud Zion here. And it's right before uh, Rip Shimon's yard site. And we'll speak a little bit more about a connection, how that connects. But so this year is really, it would have been his 100th birthday. It would have been his 100th birthday. Uh, my father was born in the uh, United States of America, Washington, D.C. in 1922. And uh, it's 100 years ago. So now when I think about that, I kind of like put things into perspective for myself that, uh, you know, that my father was born 100 years ago. And um, it kind of puts into perspective for, uh, for myself and maybe for you as well, the listeners, 
And the viewers, when we speak about 100 years, 100 years is, 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 a, is a, a piece of time. And at the same time, it shows us how, how, how quickly time passes, how quick time passes. But the time period that my father was born in, I think it was unique and unique in my father's upbringing. And it's somehow, I feel that we can all relate to it. And that's really why I felt it's, it's important. A lot of the gedolim that I spoke about, like I was mentioning to Yisrael, I want to also give a shout out to Yisrael. We've, we're finally back to each other. We want to give a shout out to Jay Foundations again for all of the wonderful, wonderful work that it does and the opportunity for myself to be able to give out and for people to be able to listen and to hear and to hear the great, great people that we were so good to, to, to know and, and we continue to uh, aspire to get from them. So uh, what I wanted to mention was that um, that 100 years ago, uh, yeah, in America, the, um, the concept of gedolim was kind of unheard of. And, um, you know, today everything's so popular. You know, we have Art Scroll and we have... Ami magazine, we got we got Mishpacha magazine, we got you know everyone everyone's used to the concept of gedolim, you know, the gedolim, and uh, my father grew up in a time period in the United States of America where Torah was not prevalent, it was a midbar shemema, and um, what he accomplished in his life is really a true testimony to not only his dedication for sure his dedication and his hasmada and his uh, perseverance. But it really shows the, the, the real message, which is that Netzach Yisrael lo Yishakir. No matter where a Yid is at all times, the Rebbe was with him, and the Rebbe was with Klal Yisrael, and a person can be, can be born in a, in, a, in a place, in a time where you might not think that, oh, I'm ever going to be a great, great person. No, every single one of us has greatness in every single time period. You know, everyone thinks, oh, when the Chofetz Chaim was around, oh, then we had Gedol, right? And, uh, oh, we had Reb Chaim Kanievsky. He grew up as a son of discipler, and he became the great Gedol he became. But I want to speak to you about my father, Allah Shalom, who didn't grow up in a house which was a Gedolim house, we don't know much about his parents because his father passed away at a very young age. Uh, when my father was only 14 years old, my father became a Yosem from his father. Um, his father was in his mid-30s when he passed away, I think 36, 37 years old. And uh, his mother lived for longer. Um, and they were people that came from Kelham and they uh, crossed over the shores of the Atlantic Ocean from, from Lita, and they ended up in Washington, D.C. in the early 20s. And um, if I'm not mistaken, they had a, a, a very chashverov that was Masada Kedushin at their chasna. And my father was born in 1922, I think two years after they got married. And he, um, he grew up in a, in a society where no yeshivas, there were no day schools. Where do you go? You go to you go to public school. His parents were his parents were hard workers. They're working. His father was a, was a working person, and um, they uh, didn't have the the concept of, of what it was to send to yeshivas because first of all there were no yeshivas, no opportunities, and the public school. 
Now, he might have had some sort of afternoon uh, <clears throat> Sunday school or a Rebbe, maybe once or twice a week. We don't know much about that. But we do know is that when he became, because this we know from him, what he told us, that when he was, you know, first of all, he was, it's important to know. Uh, we're going to touch upon this. He was, a, he, besides being a great Tamil he was also a great athlete. He, was a, he loved sports. He played sports. And even when he became a Rebbe of the Yeshiva, uh, he was known to be a uh, champion handball player, which was the, the, the Jewish game. It was good for short guys. Okay? He had this four, four-walled uh, enclosed area with a, a small, hard, very hard rubber ball. And they, 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 later on, they used to l- wear gloves. Gloves used to slap the ball against the against the, the wall, and it was it was a whole chess chess game about how you how you won the points. You know, it was like racquetball, but without a racket, and you had the, you had these gloves. And he became a uh, very very great player to such a degree that even when he became a rebbe in the when he's rebbe in the yeshiva, he still continued to play, not as often as he played when he was young, but uh, when he was younger, but. Uh, he won championships. He won the city of Baltimore. He won the state of Maryland. He won the uh, Eastern Seaboard, and he had he had medals and he had trophies. And we always used to we always used to you know oh, you know the trophies that that Daddy had. And um, so he was he grew up in America. He grew up with baseball. He grew up with sports, and uh, he was very lucky that when he was twelve years old, his mother said. Uh, you have to, we have to get him prepared for a bar mitzvah. How are we going to get him prepared for a bar mitzvah? We have to, he has to learn how to lane, how to lane for the parsha. So they hired the Rebbe. The Rebbe should teach him how to do the laning. It means he must have had rudimentary. He knew how to, kind of how to read and how to daven to a certain extent. But uh, learning Torah, I don't know how much, how much he had. Maybe he learned some Mishnayas, maybe some Aschalas HaGemara. But the Rebbe was a very good Rebbe. His name was Mr. We used to call him Mr. Shofer. I heard it was, his name was Rabbi Yaakov Shofer. Some said he was a big Talmud Chacham. Many, many Talmud Chachamim from Washington, D.C., from those days, they all were influenced by him. He had a tremendous, tremendous influence on my late father. My father spoke about him as being one of his primary rebbies. He had a correspondence with him for years and years. They would send to each other postcards every day, daily postcards. That's in those days, they didn't have like used phones. These postcards, postcards to write to each other. And um, he was the one that influenced him in learning. And, in the, and eventually, together with Rabbi Clavin, all of us, who I'm named after, was the chief rabbi in Washington, they sent my father in 1937 to a fledgling yeshiva that was the only yeshiva gedola in those days. It really was a hamachina and then a base medrash. And that was Ner Yisrael, which was started by Rabbi Ruderman, and at that time, it was a very small crowd, you know, uh, maybe 25, 30 Talmidim in the entire yeshiva. My father was one of the first, first machzer. But from that time and onwards, uh, he became a um, prodigious masmid, and he became very, very close to Rav Rudiman, and he became a Talmud Muvik from Rav Rudiman, and he became an accomplished Talmud Chacham. From a young boy coming from Washington, D.C., from a public school background, from a very, very little uh, opportunity to learn Torah at that time, 
but in a very short time he became a Talmud Chacham to the degree that when he was 16 years old, uh, 15 or 16 years old, he once spent the whole Shabbos in the base Medrash, and he learned Masech de Beitzah from cover to cover and uh, in one Shabbos. And the Rashiva, I had one of the story, I heard it from, from a few people, but one of the people I heard of it from was from the Rashiva of Rudiman Zetzal, who told me personally at my bar mitzvah, he said that my father learned the Masech de one Shabbos, from the whole Shabbos, he didn't leave the base Medrash, he had people bringing him food into the base Medrash, he stayed there for davening, and Rav Ruderman saw that he was learning, and he was learning, and he was learning, and learning. And at the end of Shabbos, he saw that he finished the Masechta. But he thought he just learned it like Bikias. He just learned it like, you know, he just ran through it. But he decided to give him a Bechina. And he gave him a Bechina. He gave him a test. And Rav Ruderman Zetzal told me that your father answered every single kasha of Teisvis. Every single kasha of Teisvis on the entire Masechta. Which means he really, really had... had had learned that Masechta and he had really um, he understood it, stood it properly. So at a young age, he already became known as a Masmid and as a Bucky. And then later on in life, he became known to be a person at Finishas. And he went Shulchanarach and Paiskim and he became a Rebbe in the Yeshiva. He became a prominent Rebbe. And I think that even Yisrael's grandfather, Shibigazun Stark, Rip Shmuel Bloom, was Zaycha to learn. I don't know if he was in his shir or not, but I know he was close with him. And um, so we see that, you know, the Rabbi Nishlam watches over Klal Yisrael under all circumstances. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, my father's petira took place the day before the, the, the Yom Hilula on the yard side of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And we know Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was one of the five Talmidim that Rabbi Akiva uh, taught Torah to what's called the Rabbi Seinu Shabbadarim after the 24,000 Talmidim were nifter and um, it says the world was shamim, the world was deathly silent and quiet because of the plague that took place the 24,000 Talmidim that we're all are in, in mourning for till today that uh, the world was like silent, that's it, there's no Torah Rabbi Kiva was the Mosad Torah now it's all gone until he got this next group of Talmidim, and one of them was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And from, from those five Talmidim, all of the Torah that we have today all emanates from that Torah. It's all brought down as far as that's really the reason why. Why do we have such Avelis? 24,000 Talmidim, fine, but why does the whole Jewish world have to sit and have an aspect of mourning in these days? Because the answer is because the Torah was lost in Klal Yisrael. And only when Rabbi Kiva was able to reinstitute it by having the, f- the five Talmidim, including Rabbi Shimon Ban Yochai, was the world able to somehow come back. So all the Torah that we have today all comes from those Talmidim. So a great Talmud Chacham, Rabbi Yisrael Ber Kaplan, who was a, also a Talmud Muvuk from Rav Rudiman and a Talmud Chavar of my father, he said on the Hesped of my father that the um, that to a certain extent my father was from those Talmidim like Rav Ruderman was able to keep the Torah going in the United States of America when everything was being lost in Europe. So it was almost like the 24,000 Talmudim were taken away. And now all of a sudden it recouped and Torah began to sprout. If you think about it, you know, you're going back, uh, you know, over 80 years ago when my father was a Talmud in the yeshiva, close to 90 years ago, 
in there Yisrael. How many yeshiva bachim were there in America? How many were sitting and learning Torah in such a dark and such a level? And then he became a Rebbe, and he taught others, he became a Marbet's Torah, and he had an effect upon others. Today, uh, we take a look at the, at the Torah world. Uh, we have thousands and thousands of Talmudim learning the yeshivas. Lakewood has 8,000, 9,000. Demir has 9,000. This yeshiva's got 1,500, and this one's got 2,000. And there's Kailulim, and there's opportunities, and the Torah abounds, and we have all the different programs. We have all the daf, and almost the daf. The, 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 we have Stefanski's daf. We, we got everything. And it's Gavaldic, it's Gavaldic. But where did it all emanate from? It all emanated from those few Talmidim, okay, who continued to learn the Torah when the Torah was shaman. The Torah was shaman. So it's very, to a certain extent, very apropos that my father's patira took place almost at the time when there's the hefsik, when we can be happy again. That's what we look for. We look forward to a lot. We're going to take a shave. We're going to be able to listen to music. We're going to get, make, go to chasnas, make chasnas, because the, 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 the magefa ended, and there's almost like, ah, now there's a, there's a fire, there's a light. The Torah is being reborn. My father was nifter on, the, on the, also the, 30, the 32nd day of the Omer, which is Lamed Bey's Omer. And we always like to say that my father had a great heart. He had a great heart. He was a wonderful, wonderful role model, a wonderful person. And I think the two aspects of my father that I'd like to share with everybody uh, and to bring out my father's godless was his, his tremendous dedication to Limit Torah and to teaching of Torah. But at the same time, his great, great heart, his great menschlichkeit, his great caring about, about people. And uh, I've said over the story uh, a few times about my father's dedication and love for Yidin and how much he wanted to, to influence others to go on the path of Torah. With a story that took place in the early 1940s, there was a young man that came to learn an area Yisrael from Ottawa, Canada, I said over the story, this, this Shabbos to my children. It's all written in the book, but I like to say over the story. It's a great, great story. It really shows godless. And there was a young boy. His name was, Mr. Har- his name was Harold Nadalny. Harold was a young boy from Ottawa, Canada. Also, similar, his father had sent him to learn in Air Yisrael. And he came for a year, and he was a younger, younger boy. He had a very good head. And the Rashiva asked my father to be his elder Rebachar and to learn with him. My father learned with him the whole year, and he really liked him, and he influenced him, and he got him into learning, and he really thought that he had great kachos. Then after the summer, this bacher didn't come back. Elozman came, he didn't come back. So my father went to the Rashid and says, where's, where's Nadalni? So he says, Nadalni's not coming back. It was the war years. The father had a scrap metal business in Canada, which then was a big, big thing because it was the wartime in Canada and the United States. They were trying to, to pick up, the, you know, to build up whatever they were going to use scrap metal, ships, tanks, who knows what there was going to be. And um, he wanted his son to work with him in the business. And he said, he's not going to go back to Yeshiva. You know, a lot of people didn't understand the godless of Tehran. Now business was more important. My father said to Yeshiva, he's such a great bacher, it's a shod, it's a chaval, that he shouldn't be involved in Tehran. So the um, Yeshiva said, no, what can we do? The father doesn't want to let him go back. Nothing we can do. My father said, if, if I go and try to convince him, and try to convince the father, the Rashiva's masking, the Rashiva said, yeah. So the Rashiva gave my father money. And my father took a train from those days, from Baltimore, Maryland to Montreal. It's probably like an eight, nine hour train ride. It was in the middle, it was, it was the 
really cold then, especially in Montreal, Canada, very, very cold. Didn't have heat like they have in those days, in today's. The trains were not exactly like today. It was like, old choo-choo train, choo-choo-choo-choo-choo. And not the choo-choo trains, but it was, you know, it wasn't the modern-day trains today. Not a speed machine. And then from Montreal, he transferred over to, to another train, took him to Ottawa. And he got to Ottawa. Where did my father stay when he got to Ottawa? He didn't, there was no phones. He didn't know even, he didn't have a phone number. Just went. When he got there, he opened up the telephone book in the train station. They looked for a rabbi, and he saw there was one rabbi in Ottawa, and he happened to be, he, um, he called that rabbi. That rabbi happened to be a rabbi of any rabbi, Oscar Z. Fassman, Rabbi Zelig Fassman, who became uh, later on very well known in America. He was from Chicago, Illinois. He was the head of the Skokie Yeshiva. His son is the great Reb Chaim Fassman. That's how he passed away. He was Rosh Kola in Los Angeles. There's a book just came out. Just want to plug it. A book by about Reb Chaim Fassman, written by my good friend Reb David Fox, son Reb Kiva Fox, who wrote a fantastic book about Reb Chaim Fassman. The first two chapters are all about Rabbi Zelig Fassman. And Rabbi Fassman Zetzal said to my father to come and stay in his house. He stayed in his house. And it was pretty um, divine providence because later on, my father's uh, brother-in-law, my late uncle, Rabbi David Kalman, Rabbi married Rabbi Fassman's daughter. So we became a chutonim and became relatives. And there's an end to the story, which we'll soon see the divine, how, the, how the Hashkoch of Pratis works. But my father went... After he slept at night at Rabbi Fassman's house, he went to visit the Nadalnis the next day in the scrap metal business, and he wanted to convince the Bacher to come back, and the Bacher said, listen, I'd like to come back. My father doesn't let me try to convince the father, and the father said, no, it's more important for him to make money. You know, he'll, he'll be kaveh, you know, he'll learn, he'll daven. In those days, that's what the people did. And unfortunately, my father was not successful in getting... Mr. Herbert and Donnelly to come back. So the end of the story, my father had to go back, my train, go back to Baltimore. And you would say that the story ended there, you know? It was almost like a wasted trip. My father went and tried to get a person to come back, and he wasn't successful. But there's an uh, epitaph, there's an end to the story. And the end of the story is, is that my father used to tell me that, oh, Herbert and Donnelly that he once learned with, he became a big veer, he became an usher. He became one of the biggest real estate people in, in Canada. Uh, that's what my father had heard about him. And um, when my father was Nifter in 1988, and I was, I was, um, uh, I decided to open the yeshiva in his memory. So, and I had to go raise money for a fledgling yeshiva. I said, you know what, maybe I'll try to get it, some money from Mr. Nadolny. Maybe he'll want to support the yeshiva named after my father. And to make a long story short, uh, I ended up meeting with Mr. Nadolny in Ottawa, Canada. And he gave me an appointment. And I came to his office. He wasn't really a Shemitari Mitzvah at that point. But he said to me, I want to donate to this yeshiva because your father was a very, very good person and a good man. And he was a good friend of mine. He ended up giving me $10,000 seed money in order to start the yeshiva. And uh, so what I always say is that my father's efforts, going back 45 years prior to that, in the early 40s, 
paid back dividends because that Mr. Herbert Nadolny was Zoycha to give money that our yeshiva was able to start and their was able to start. And therefore, uh, so you never give up. You never know when you're going to do a Maisetayv, how that Maisetayv is going to, to come out. Um, my father um, had a story that, unfortunately, my father suffered from heart problems from a fairly young age. And uh, that caused a lot of distress. And um, medically, he was sick. And at a certain point, he was literally in his early 40s. And at that point, they said the only thing that could possibly help him would be what's called bypass surgery. Today, bypass surgery is a relatively easy method. But in those days, in 1974, it was in its fledgling fledgling, uh, matzav. And... um, we're going to speak about this story because this enters into the story, which is the first story in the book about uh, a famous NBA ba- a basketball player and um, how somehow he got intertwined into our lives and into my father's life. So the story goes like this. My father needed bypass surgery. There were two main places where you could do bypass surgery in those days. There was Houston, Texas, and there was a very famous world-class surgeon named Dr. DeBakey. And then there was Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and St. Luke's Hospital. And there was a, a doctor, a surgeon by the name of Dr. Dudley Johnson. I remember hearing Dudley Johnson was seven feet tall, or close, it was six, seven, excuse me, it was six, seven, very, very tall man. And my father's, um, my father's cardiologist, Dr. Tabatsky, Oliver Sholem, who was very, very dedicated to my father, said, these are the two places, and you should pick which one you want. My father said he had heard that Dr. DeBakey had the best hands in the business. And he was one of the, the pioneers in the, in the thing. But that by him, everything was a conveyor belt. You know, you just kind of like, you know, you did the operation, you got onto the operating belt, and he just knocked off. He just knocked one after the other. He did a great job. But he heard that Dr. Dudley Johnson was a big mensch. That he didn't just, it wasn't a conveyor, but by him, every single individual is an individual. And my father said, I don't want to be a behemoth on the shkita. I want to be with a person that cares about it. There was a tremendous insight into that. So my father flew to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, together with my mother, Stark, and my brother, Stark, and um, Reb Michal Tversky, Stark, was a Talmud of my father's, and he was Machnes Eirich, and then my father had this very, very severe operation. In those days, it was a very dangerous operation. It wasn't a simple thing. But Dr. Johnson said he feels he'll be successful. And, um, and he did a successful operation on my father. Now, the truth is, when I say successful operation, it gave my father um, you know, over 20-some-odd years of, of quality life afterwards. Maybe even more, 20, 23, 24 years. I can't remember exactly how many. And because um, at, at that point, my father was not able to walk and he wasn't able to exercise all the things he had done in his youth. Very, very different, different type of life. And uh, now Dr. Johnson was successful in his bypass surgery. But there was a big chiddush because I remember at the time they said the operation was supposed to take three hours and they have to keep the blood flowing. And then at a certain point, Dr. Johnson saw that there was a very big problem. He ended up, the operation ended up taking 
almost twice the time, six hours, which is really beyond the normal. And uh, eventually, my father came out of the operating table. I remember the line that he said and when he was getting out of the operating table, turned up, when the anesthesia wore off, he turned to the doctor and said, Doctor, got to tell you one thing. He says, What do you want to tell me, sir? I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. That's what I want to tell you. <laughs> and everyone had a big chuckle in the way, in the, in the, in the you know, after surgery op room. And um, what was amazing was in those days, they didn't have microscopic surgery that we have today. They have cameras. Everything, you know, they have cameras going, the music is going. It's like a whole thing. Those days, it wasn't like that. Dudley Johnson had tremendous hands, and he had to sew my father's arteries, which were very, very ruptured and badly damaged from the heart disease. He had to do it with the feeling of his hands. And my father said that, Johnson said, Rabbi Liff, I felt that God was holding my hands and helping me to make the operation with you. But I just saw recently that Dudley Johnson, Zohar Latoyf, Dr. Dudley Johnson, when he was a young boy in Wisconsin, his mother taught him to knit and to sew. So he learned how to knit and sew. His hands were used to using very delicate uh, needles and this and that. And that helped him when he made a decision he wanted to become a surgeon. He became a great surgeon because he knew how to knit and sew. Knitting and sewing was part of the Rebunisham put a, a person into the world, which I feel he was a he was there for many, many people. He saved many people's lives, but my father's life especially. Great, great Misa. That's the Misa of saving my father. Now the end, now the end of the story is really the real knocker, the NBA story. NBA story goes like this. So my father, when he went to the operation, he went to Milwaukee. My father always, my father loved Svarim. Svarim was like, you take a look at my, my little collection of Svarim. My father had thousands and thousands of them. My father's Yetzirah was from, he used to say, Talmud Chacham Yetzirah is from. My father loved to buy Svarim. He didn't love to buy, he loved Svarim to, to learn them and to know them. Svarim was his lifeblood. It was his lifeblood. And whenever he went away on a vacation, he always would pack up a big box of all the Svarim that he felt he wanted to use for that kufa, and he would go off to Svarim. When he went for the operation, he took two boxes of Svarim. And before the operation, and after the operation, that's what he was learning, especially after the operation, when he had the opportunity, to, he said he, he just had kaychas, because the blood was flowing. He had chidushi Torah that was coming out. It was Gavaldic. His whole life changed because of that. And what happened was, he flew back from Milwaukee on a flight together with my mother. And on that flight was a very famous NBA player. We'll keep his name quiet for now. This famous NBA player was a very, very tall, big, black, African-American, world-famous NBA player. And my mother at the time knew that I loved basketball. So she decided it'd be a great thing to get his autograph because my father was put into first class. So he was sitting together with his basketball player. Now at that time, that particular basketball player was um, changed his name and he took on a Muslim name because he became a Muslim uh, believer. And he was not exactly, I would say, Jew-friendly to the least. And the uh, the uh, attendants on the flight said to my mother, I said, you know, she wants to go over and get it. Maybe his, you know, who is that? His name is, maybe he can get his autograph. He says, no, no, it's not, it's not worthwhile for you to get his name. My mother's like, maybe five foot tall. And this guy was close to seven feet tall, maybe more than seven feet tall. And so she decided she's not going to ask him for the autograph. And then the flight ended 
And my father got off the plane and we took his boxes and we got his, we got his, um, his suitcases and we went home and then we got home and it was a very, it was an emotional time. My father called the Rashiva and he was crying on the phone. The Rashiva gave him a bracha. A lot of stories behind that. I want to zero in on the NBA player part. And then we opened up the boxes. We opened up the boxes. We don't see any svarim. What do we see? We see a big color television set, which we never had. We saw what's called the boombox. Remember the boombox in the old days, the boomboxes? We said, uh, Abba, uh, did you kind of like uh, switch to svarim for the... My father didn't know anything. So we called the airline. We said, you know, wrong box. Oh, yes, Mr. Sohn, so the NBA player is very irate and he's very upset. And he's been asking, where is, where is his boombox and where is the call? I said, well, they're here. Um, well, we're sending a car to come pick it up. I said, well, it must have been an exchange and he must have taken the other boxes. And maybe the airline put the wrong tags. And that's why we got these tags instead of that tags. He said, we, don't hear anything. we didn't hear anything about it. We'll ask him, but he hasn't told us anything about any books. And that was it. My father's farm, his precious farm, were lost. My father was very, very hurt. His precious farm was like, it was especially coming at the end of an operation, a hard operation. This was almost like a, you know, a little shot. And then a few days later, we get a phone call. My father got a phone call from a person, a Jewish person, not religious. He said, is this Rabbi Liff? He says, yes. He says, I'm so-and-so. I live in Washington, D.C., yes. And I was driving on the Baltimore-Washington Expressway, and I saw on the side of the road near the airport, I saw a bunch of Jewish books. I'm not religious, but I know what Jewish books are. So I stopped on the side, I opened them up, and I see your name is in them. And I picked them up. My father was so excited. And we, we got this farm that were returned. But how did those farm get on the side of the highway? Oh, Someone must have thrown them out. Who threw them out? Now, we don't know for sure who threw them out. We can only conjecture who threw them out. My father was so upset that how could a person take Svarim, which is literally the, the, the Kedusha and the lifeblood of a Jewish person, and just throw them onto the road? So my father said something. My father was not a type of person, a vindicative person. He said in Yiddish, and I'll just translate into English, he said, the person that threw that, those svarim should get a punishment, should be punished. The hand that threw those svarim should be punished. The following Friday night, that particular ball player was playing an NBA game, and he went up for a shot, and he missed the shot, and he got so upset, and he took his hand, and he smashed it against the backboard or against the stancia of the thing, and he broke his hand and his arm in three or four places, and he was out for most of the season that season. And it was so clear that the words that my father had said, the hand that did it, the holy words of my father had an effect, the connection to those holy svarim, that there was something that was taken away, that was a bizarre for those svarim, had a great effect. So that showed a little bit of the godless of what I grew up with. And I think that that's a great lesson that I that I want to share with you. I want to share with you one last story. That's going to be the story for tonight. And that has to, we had two stories. The third story we'll say is the, the, the Rebbe Hanan story. Rebbe Hanan Vasim and Zechazanik came to America 
and he came for the yeshiva in Branovich, which was pre-World War II, and uh, he came to Baltimore, and he gave a shear in the yeshiva, and then the and my father heard that shear. My father was a young bacher, and then Rav uh, Rudman went around collecting money for him, helping to raise money for Branovich. And then Rav Ochanan went for Shabbos to Washington to Rabbi Clavin's house, who I'm named after. And my father felt it was a great opportunity to be able to be together with Rav Ochanan. And he went to Washington for Shabbos to his parents and uh, to his mother, and he stayed by And after davening, walking out of the shul, there weren't that many you know, people that understood how great a gadol was. But my father was together with the entourage. They were walking Rav Ochanan and Rav Clavin's itself back to the house, and Rabbi Hanan, you know, seeing a yeshiva bacher in those days, there were very few yeshiva bacher in America. He saw my father was dressed like a yeshiva bacher, and he said, in Yiddish, Avu Lernster, where do you learn? So my father said, I learned to, learned to Baltimore. He learned to Nerysville. He said, oh, you heard the shir today? My Rabbi Hanan had said a shir in Arif Shabbos. And I said, yeah, you heard the shir. He said, you could say it over. The can says, Ibrizogen. So my father was quiet, and my father hesitated, and he said, Irabnishkechazit. I didn't yet review it. Later on, my father told us that he really had, he really knew the shir, but he hadn't done a full review on it. And Rabbi Hanan said a line to him which stayed for him for the rest of his life. Rabbi Hanan said, Nishka chazit is nishka learnt. If you didn't review it, you didn't learn it. Real review is, real learning is when you really make a chazar on it. And that statement went into my father and it became, it became like a, a very strong point in his life. That night he stayed up he made a mishmer and he has it over the whole shir for Ruchanan. And he really understood the shir well. And he went the next morning after davening. He went to Ruchanan and he said, I has the shir. So Ruchanan said, No, this is all give it a shir. I fast it over the whole shir from the beginning to the end. And he added on a kasha that he had and a teretz that he had. And Ruchanan was so happy and so joyous that a yeshiva bach in America in those days, the late 30s, was learning Torah. And when he met Ruchanan the next day, and he went back to Baltimore and he said to the Rav Rudiman, with such Talmidim, like Rav Rudiman, what you're producing over here, you have nothing to be embarrassed from the yeshivas in Europe. You're producing the same thing as the yeshivas in Europe. And my father, that shir became a shir that he remembered for the rest of his life. Shiva, Rav Rudiman would say, my, tell my father to say over that shir to Bakram. Later he said, Rabbi Yankov, say over the shir from Mohanan. And later on in life, my father became very ill in the end of his life. There was a great Talmud Chacham, Reb Nachman Klein Zetzal, who came in to my visit my father in the hospital, and he said, no. So my father was a little bit down and depressed, wasn't well. He said, Rabbi Yaakov, say over the shir from Ochon. My father said, over the whole shir from beginning to end. He retained that shir. This week's parish is, in So what we'd like to give over is that we see, my father had these two aspects. He had greatness in Torah and great normalcy. And um, I really feel that that's the message that he gave all of us. He had great midas. He, um, he was able to influence many, many people. He cared about Talmidim. And uh, we feel that our aspect of, small aspect of our Batsa Torah, both in Ner Yaakov and Ateris Yaakov, continues to carry his name with Rabbi Yaakov, and these words should be Le'ilan Ishmasai, and Mir Hashem, we give a bracha to everybody that we should be Zaycha, that to our Habatzah and our Amelis and our caring about another person, 
which was a, a hallmark of what my father saw in his Rebbe and his Rebbeim, that we ourselves should emulate that. We should be Zechim Hashem to Mashiach Tzidkeinim Herev Yameinu Amen. Wishing everyone a wonderful, wonderful week. It should be Lebedike Gesunte Lagba Eimer. Mitzvahem, we should be zeichet Yeshuas Nachamis for us and for God's Klal Yisrael. Thank you very much for listening. We want to thank JFoundations.com. If you could sponsor any of our activities, it'd be another way of addressing and being able to give over Torah to other people. Go on the website and show your support. Thank you very much for joining us.